Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be joined by Sarah Pontek here, Cross Asset Reporter, as we get into, dig into the markets. I want to get over to the CEO of Becton Dickinson joining us to talk about uh, the the global medical technology companies strides in helping to fight the pandemic that is COVID-19. Tom Poland joins us right now. And Tom, really appreciate your time. I know this is, must have been an incredibly busy uh, year and now year and a half for you. Um, where do you stand right now in the fight against COVID? Yeah, thank you, Matt and, and Sarah, for, for having me. So uh, BD is, has a very broad um, role in, in combating COVID, and we, we have been busy from the start, not only working closely when we're a global company, and so had a role whether or not the outbreaks in China through Europe to the U.S., we've been on the front lines right from the start. Today, we are a major provider of solutions for rapid diagnosis of COVID with 15-minute point-of-care tests, as well as molecular tests, which we've enabled. Um, 90% of any patient who ends up in an ICU with COVID will be touched by one of our devices, and so we have a major role there. And today, we're very, very actively focused on ramping up production of syringes. Um, As the world leader in syringes for delivering vaccines, we've committed to make an incremental 1 billion syringes this year specifically for uh, providing COVID doses, uh, COVID vaccine doses around the world. So this is why we're so lucky to have you today, because not only do you manufacture medical tools, you guys have been at the forefront of creating COVID-19 testing diagnostics as well. So with that said, seeing the production ramp up, where do we stand now in in not just the fight against COVID-19, but also when it comes to COVID-19 testing diagnostics? Clearly, we have come a very, very far way in the matter matter of a year. Absolutely. I mean, we went from not having any tests really to diagnose COVID, given it it really wasn't relevant before, to we, for example, we normally take, it takes about three years to develop a new diagnostic test, and we were able to do so in in three months and ramp up production. Um, We're a leader in rapid testing for flu testing traditionally, and have been so for, for over 10 years. And let's say in a normal year of, of flu, we may make 10 10 million tests in a very um, severe flu season, maybe 8 million tests in a normal flu year, we quickly ramped up to make 10 million tests a month um, for COVID testing. So very significant increases. And I think today um, what's very positive is, is that testing capacity exists, right? That we've passed the point where testing capacity is an issue. There's more capacity than there is requirements today. And I think that's that's obviously a great thing. We're seeing really good success with the vaccine deployment as well. And I think we'll continue to see progress there. Um, and of course, today, testing is beginning to shift a bit from the focus on testing symptomatic patients to beginning to focus on um, testing to help reopen the economy and schools and businesses and the like. So in terms of the company, uh, what do you need to do to 
um, impress investors a little bit more, Tom. I look at the chart of Beck and Dickinson stock versus the S&P and versus the healthcare sector, and you've underperformed from the beginning of 2020. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's, it's, Matt, it's a good question. I think in, in fairness, there was a, we had a quality uh, issue when we, when I first took over in the first week that we were addressing. And that, that has um, been an overhang in the stock as we look at being able to get that submitted and resolved, which is forthcoming here um, in the, in the next uh, quarter or two, we've communicated very clearly. I think that that'll be a very positive factor for the stock. And then as we think uh, going forward, we continue to execute on our strategy around driving uh, new innovations into the marketplace for growth. Um, of course, we're driving a lot of new solutions to help address the COVID pandemic. And uh, that, that will take care of itself. This is obviously our aim is executing that strategy. And to be very fair to you, Tom, you took over the CEO role at a pretty difficult time, you could say. I mean, right when COVID-19 was really beginning, would you say that you have a philosophy or a theme as to how you're approaching the chief executive officer role at BD? And has that changed over the past year as we have had to deal with the pandemic? I think for us, we're going to come out stronger at the after the, the pandemic in terms of uh, how we've used the, the challenge to be able to accelerate how we think about growth in our culture and our company. The example of being able to develop an assay in three months that normally takes three years, being able to scale production of products like IV sets and syringes at unprecedented rates and levels um, shows, really unleashes and demonstrates the agility that we have as a large company. And what we're very focused on is maintaining that momentum in uh, as the world gets control of COVID. And we can see a lot of momentum um, that we've built over that period of time, whether or not it's very much larger installation uh, footprints of our point of care devices because of COVID that now we're adding additional menu to, uh, same thing on our molecular footprint side, or how we're, for example, expanding our pharmaceutical systems business and being able to create new injection device capacity as ultimately COVID vaccines will migrate into pre-filled syringes will create opportunities for us to help the world on a long-term basis there as well. So um, we, we definitely see COVID has properly has given I think the world and many businesses uh, an opportunity to, uh, to think differently about growth and accelerate growth over the long term. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time here. Tom Polin is the president and CEO of the global medical technology company, BD, Beck and Dickinson and Company. Sarah Ponzek, our cross-asset reporter, is joining me today as um, uh, we wish Paul a very happy Paul Sweeney out on a very uh, well-deserved vacay day. We have seen, Sarah, some amazing moves in the oil market today, and we want to bring in Ellen Wall to talk about that. She is president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, and I guess, uh, Ellen, Transversal is uh, sort of the intersection between geopolitics and energy policy. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. We're a uh, boutique consulting firm that does work in the energy policy and uh, geopolitics and energy markets sphere. So what do you make of today's OPEC meeting? They agreed to keep output unchanged in April, but we have a jump of 5% or more 
on um, the underlying crude contracts. Yeah, wow. This was this was a surprise, I think, to most uh, to most people uh, going into this meeting because uh, we saw a lot of headlines seeing that OPEC was poised to kind of cool off uh, an oil market that looked like it was about to overheat in prices, and instead, uh, they basically seem like they're about to fan the flames. Uh, it does look like uh, Russia is going to get some kind of uh, special permission to increase production, about 100,000 barrels a day. Uh, they say they need this for uh, domestic consumption. But uh, when you look at the overall oil market, that's not all that much. Plus, uh, you've got that 1 million barrels a day that Saudi Arabia is holding off the market. And uh, we haven't heard for sure about that. And uh, we know that the Saudi oil minister likes to uh, make a, a splash and uh, have a, a surprise at the press conference, uh, there is talk that the Saudis could actually decide to uh, hold that oil off the market for April as well. And what a long, strange trip it has been for oil prices. I mean, less than a year ago in April, we were talking about negative oil prices after another OPEC surprise. Today, we get a surprise to the upside. And I'm looking at WTI crude oil now trading at the highest level since April of 2019. Like you said, they went the opposite way, possibly fanning the flames of overheating. What comes next after this? Well, I think now we need to we need to start talking about the fact that um, gas prices in the United States could uh, we could be seeing average prices in the U.S. hitting three dollars a gallon, uh, which is a significant amount of money for people who aren't used to paying that much. Plus, we've got that on top of. By the um, way, I laugh. Ha ha ha! I laugh from here in Berlin. Three dollars <laughs> a gallon. What I wouldn't do for three dollar a gallon gasoline. Yeah, well, well, in in Florida where I am, I think it's about two sixty right now. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 a big deal, I think, for a lot of people that are still very much hurting from uh, from the economic consequences of the pandemic, and uh, that could really uh, pose some some hardship to people, particularly this summer when gasoline prices generally rise. Of course, you have to look at U.S. production. Typically, when uh, when oil prices rise like this, we see U.S. production uh, increasing and kind of kicking uh, into gear. But we've really had oil basically uh, holding steady in the U.S. at about 11 million barrels a day. A lot of the big uh, producers are saying that they are not planning any increases. But you know, with WTI, uh, you know, up at, at $64 a barrel, I really don't see how uh, how they can maintain this discipline. How uh, you know anyone with with uh, with some money can uh, you know hire a hire a crew and, and get something going down in Texas if there's money to be made. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, if we do see uh, production kicking up somewhat in the U.S. in response to these higher prices. Uh, but at the same time, you've also got to look at India and China, which uh, India was really almost begging OPEC to increase production because uh, of rising prices there. And you have to really say, well, what is that going to to do to their economies and to their uh, economic recovery. I'm paying about seven fifty, seven seven fifty. I think in dollars a gallon, and my truck uh, uses about. Uh, well, I, I, I'm so used to thinking about it in European ways. So um, you know, <laughs> convert it uh, for us. Uh, like sometimes 30 liters for 100 kilometers. But uh, I guess it's about 10 miles per gallon is what I get in my truck. So and nonetheless, um, Ellen, I will be driving as much as I can when this lockdown is done. You know, 
a, a huge carbon footprint because I need to get out. I've been cooped up for so long. Is that, you think, the same for everybody else? Well, I think in the U.S. it may be a little different because some places have been open for a long time, but I do think that we are going to see a surge. Um, we're still looking at a deficit in, in jet fuel demand because air travel is is not picking up the same way uh, road travel will be. And, and I think that given uh, continuing restrictions that we're still going to see uh, jet fuel not really recovering uh, to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. But uh, and so the question is, can can gasoline demand make up for that? And uh, in some in some respects, it definitely can make up for some of that uh, deficit. But what we're really looking at is actually uh, plastics, and we've seen uh, an increase in production mm. in the United States in terms of of, of plastics, single use plastics especially, and that's actually um, t- uh, taking up some of that uh, deficit in jet fuel demand. I will say that although I have a large carbon footprint, I'm very much against plastics. So I try and balance out, you know, my eco activism (laughs) in that sense. Ellen, thanks so much. Uh, Ellen Ward there joining us from Transversal Consulting. She's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Sarah Ponzek, I'm so proud that you used a Grateful Dead reference. I I knew I had a feeling that you might you might like that. (laughs) I figure you must just been like about five when Jerry died. But I appreciate it. Nonetheless, oil trading up. 5% 5% at 64.11. Matt Miller here in Berlin alongside Sarah Ponzak in New York. We are joined by former portfolio manager and head of research at Rubicon Fund Management who uh, uh, um, has written, Richard Cookson, who has written uh, a pretty amazing column, I have to say, for Bloomberg Opinion. Richard, I am... You know, as a professional journalist, a sensationalist, I love alarmism. <laughs> and if you if you say Black Monday is coming, that just gets me going. So why yeah. do you think we're headed for possibly a crash, the likes of which we haven't seen since 1987? Uh, well, I didn't quite put it as strongly as that. The, um, actually, what I said, the mechanism is quite similar. And if you go back to 1987... You have as many gray hairs as I have. Um, what was the big driving factor in October 87 was something called portfolio insurance, where these guys called Leyland O'Brien and Rubenstein decided you didn't need to buy options. You could go and replicate them, and they told you how much you needed to sell. And basically what happened was that you've got this forced selling into a market. It's a mechanistic selling. Now, I say that because, actually, if you look at every single bank and large institutions risk management there's something called value at risk and very simply what this does is it looks at the last year you can use longer and it says okay what's the volatility over that time period and what's the correlation of that time period and you whack all that in it turns you out a number now if those volatilities start to uh, t- start to go up and if correlation starts to shift then mechanistically uh, you're going to get some selling. You can put more capital in, but actually, guess what? When you're losing money, you tend to just to sell. So it's the same sort of mechanistic uh, process. In other words, uh, particularly if those correlations flip. So what you've seen is equity markets falling at the same time as long-dated Treasury bonds falling. Uh, that is a real problem because they assume that most of the time, and most, I mean 95% of the time, that's not going to happen. So you're assuming that it happens only on 5% of occasions. It's happening more than 5%. So you're starting to see forced selling in mm. both markets. 
Now, the longer term. Yeah, typically, because typically um, investors see, at least in my young lifetime, um, I'm not even I'm not even 50 yet. Investors see bonds as a safe haven for when stocks are coming down. So um, you buy bonds when you're worried about selling stocks and you can get rid of your bonds when you want to buy equities. You're saying that and that that has kind of looked like it's changing over the last couple of weeks. Well, uh, again, it's a very interesting question, that, that, that negative correlation between the two, because before about 1998, that was positive. In other words, for decades previously, they tended to, 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 they tended to go in tandem. In other words, treasury bonds sold off at the same time as equities and vice versa. Now, that changed. The best evidence suggests that it changed because you had disinflationary pressures and I think you've got far more inflationary pressures coming through at a time when uh, both equities and bonds are very expensive. So you're relying upon a correlation that has actually only been um, there for the last 20 years or so uh, to protect yourself. Now, all I'm saying is that if you have those correlations flipping the other way around, from a risk management point of view, you're going to be able to hold less of both. Because they're not losses in one is not going to be able to offset uh, gains in the other, and vice versa. If you see what I it's mean. So, it's and such an have... interesting. It's such an interesting. We could have this conversation for an hour, right? Because mm, it's sure. so weird that disinflation worries happened in like after Paul Volcker. All of a sudden, we're worried about disinflation. It was the opposite of what he's famous for. Uh, so, Sarah, what do you think? Because right, you've been well, watching Volker, this. Paul Volcker was the yeah. early. Yeah, Paul Volcker was the. You know, he was remember the early eighties. So, right. so it was really when. China came along um, and added surplus capacity to the to the world economy. They got these disinflationary pressures coming through, and if you look over the last twenty years, what's changed for America has been you've got this persistent disinflation coming through from imported goods. Right. So all I'm saying is that actually you're starting to get some inflationary pressures coming through, both because of the supply side shocks from the pandemic, but also you've got central banks. Um, printing money uh, on a fairly unprecedented scale and at the same time telling you it's not going to work, which is either them being stupid or mendacious, possibly a combination of the and, and we do see five-year break-even inflation expectations now at the highest level since 2008. Just last week, speaking of that flipping correlations, we actually saw real yields and U.S. equities, the correlation between the two, dropping to the most negative level in five years. And I would love to read a really quick excerpt from your opinion piece, Richard. Where you sure. say the bigger point, however, is this, this disinflation, disinflationary forces that help propel assets higher are turning into inflationary ones. And if that leads to a shift in bond equity correlations, as seems to be happening, institutions big and small will have to stump up more capital or reduce risk across the board. But my question to that is, if you need to reduce risk, but you can't go to bonds because all of a sudden bonds and stocks are moving in tandem, how do you actually go about reducing risk? Right. You just have to basically, uh, and again, it's not just bonds and equities, it's bonds and risk. So if you look at, you know, credit or you look at junk bonds, you'll find that actually there's a very, very strong relationship between the performance of equity markets and performance of credit. Yeah? So actually what you need to do in those sorts of situations is just to hold much more cash and or buy a lot of volatility. So if you've noticed, even though you've seen a tear in equity markets, vol- volatility in equity markets has been persistently big. And that's what happens when you can't hedge with bonds. It's, I mean, by holding much more cash isn't something you want to do if you're truly worried about inflation, which is driving this. I have to say, at the at the offset, 
Richard. I apologizing for dramatizing your column because I didn't even have to. I think it's an incredibly uh, well thought out and well written piece, and I really appreciate you joining us. And I will recommend to all of our listeners um, just check out if you have a, a Bloomberg terminal in front of you, OPIN Go, to check out Richard's column. It's it's uh, honestly it's one of the most interesting columns I've read on the opinion page in. Uh, in in a long time and i read opinion columns um you know regularly it's probably my favorite section on the bloomberg terminal so this value at risk uh you know that we lay people became familiar with i think during the uh when goldman sachs was called up on capitol hill in front of senator carl levin um i haven't really thought about it since then and it's really great to see um and also a little bit scary, honestly, to see this because Sarah's question is a good one. What do you go to if you're worried about um, uh, of our shock? And cash is terrifying. Vol- volatility is a very interesting answer. And that's one I'm going to continue to delve into with our guests um, throughout. So Richard Cook's in there. He's a former portfolio manager and head of research at Rubicon Fund Management and a Bloomberg opinion columnist for us now. Check it out. O-P-I-N go this is Bloomberg. All right, let's get over right now to someone who might advise my parents if they had a lot more money. Michael Sunfeld joins us, chairman of Tiger 21 on how the ultra wealthy are investing. And uh, Michael, it's especially interesting to ask you what you think of the Elizabeth Warren tax plan. There are some very wealthy people that are for a wealth tax, um, but probably more who think it's pretty un-American. What's your take? Thanks for having me. Uh, Most of our members are entrepreneurs who spent 20, 30 years creating businesses from scratch. Uh, They're first-generation wealth creators. And uh, the wealth tax would be, uh, in their mind, antithetical. Uh, Most of our members are willing to pay taxes, even progressive taxes. So the more money you make on income, the more you pay. But a wealth tax creates a real problem Mm. for people who own businesses. If you if you have everything tied up in a business and they give you a wealth tax, you can't sell 2% of a business or 5% of a business. Uh, and if you look at yields on a bond, if you have a wealth tax on top of an income tax, you can't even uh, break even on it. So uh, there's a lot of negatives, and I don't think it would improve the economy particularly. All right. Well, clearly we have a new presidential administration, and it will be interesting down the line to see what the Biden tax plan in actuality actually looks like and and what the policies and encompasses actually hold. I want to get to how many of your members over at Tiger 21 are actually looking at markets and thinking about markets these days. You release information on how your members are positioned, and something that really jumped out at me was that Only 3% allocation to hedge funds, which is a historical low. And I was hoping you could give us some color on on really what's driving this, what's behind this. Sure. This is a a 10-year low. Hedge funds were uh, more than twice as much as a proportion. Uh, But hedge funds typically, although there are many strategies, in general relate to the risk-free or government rate. And when you have very low rates, it's very hard for hedge funds to produce the kind of historic returns that made them stars. And then you have the compounding effect that hedge funds generally have very high fees, which are acceptable when they're delivering 10 and 15 and 20% returns. 
But in this very low interest rate environment, hedge funds just can't produce. They're, they can't squeeze the juice enough to make it attractive. And then it gets even hot, harder when you look at the fees. This is what our members are doing in meetings is comparing the different opportunities. And uh, uh, they're just not adding up to hedge funds these days. What about private equity? It's, I think, interesting that um, after real estate, your uh, uh, your I guess group of investors is most invested in private equity. Twenty six percent after twenty seven percent in real estate, and that's even better than public equity. Yeah, it's 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 an extraordinary uh, evolution. Uh, our members over the last decade have gone from low teens, ten, eleven, twelve percent. Uh, private equity to 26%. It's the one area over the last decade that has uh, moved forward uh, all the time. You know, our members, because our members are first first generation wealth creators, uh, and they come together in these groups, uh, they're comparing notes. The the three places they're most invested is real estate, as you say, private equity, and public equity. Those three still add up to almost 80%. So they're fully invested. But it's in the private equity where you can really create wealth if you can roll up your shirt sleeves and you have the skills to, to build businesses. It's the small businesses that grow into businesses that are big enough to be owned or bought by public companies where the, the largest amount of wealth is created. And that's what our members represent. It's, it's sort of making, uh, creating wealth the, the old time way in America. So lately, you mentioned the risk-free rate of ter- return. We've seen long end rates rising. Uh, you now yes. see rates at pre-pandemic highs. We're in the midst of the fastest quarterly increase in 10-year yield since 2016. Would you say, though, that this move is getting to a point where you or your members would say, maybe this isn't such a great sign? You know, um, most of our members are more entrepreneurs than investors. Their skill sets are not as market-based as they are building businesses. And what they see is the potential of inflation. Inflation hasn't happened uh, in the last couple of years on the wage side, uh, and things that people buy, if you're uh, in terms of living, have not gone up, but assets have gone up. But uh, look at just the, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, lumber prices up 100%. There's a recent reports that we might be in a commodity super cycle. One example that we talk about mm-hmm. in our groups uh, is that the whole, inter- the whole uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. is going to be rewired for new energy. Copper is going to be a long bet that's amazing. So uh, we could have rising interest rates uh, and inflation, and I wouldn't bet against it. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Michael Sonnenfeld, their chairman of Tiger 21. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.